The Roaring Twenties is an era burned into the modern psyche as a time of celebratory excess after a world war and the end of the influenza pandemic. And with vaccines going out by the millions today, an end to the COVID-19 pandemic is in sight. But historians are saying now's not the time to break out the champagne and flapper dresses. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver, and this is Why. Ah, the Roaring Twenties. Champagne flowed and people celebrated like there was no tomorrow. And no surprise, too. The Western world had reason to celebrate after coming out of the First World War and the 1918 influenza pandemic. Well, as you say, um, the end of the last major pandemic, the 1918 influenza pandemic that started probably in the US um, and killed something like a third of the global population. Um, sorry, infected something like a third of the global population, not killed. <laughs> um, that was followed pretty rapidly by you know, the Roaring Twenties, which if you think about it in popular imagination is the period of flappers, jazz dancing, um, the prohibition in the US, that kind of whole cultural outpouring, but also loads of social and cultural and political transformation. Like women became increasingly prominent members of society. In lots of places, they gained the vote etc. Gay culture really flourished in lots of Western cities. That's Agnes Arnold Forster. Postdoc in the Social Studies of Medicine Department at McGill University. And I'm a historian of healthcare and medicine. Primarily our expertise is in the history of the United Kingdom, but I also work on the history of Canada and the US. We asked Agnes to join This Is Why to talk about her piece called Will the End of the COVID-19 Pandemic Usher in a Second Roaring Twenties? And there's been some circulation about whether that will also happen in our own, very own 2020s, um, whether we'll see a similar kind of return to joy and hedonism. Um, and in my piece, uh, I argue that maybe that's a tad too optimistic um, and that although there's plenty of opportunities, or there will be plenty of opportunities for celebration with the kind of easing of lockdown and shelter-in-place orders, um, that perhaps we need to be a bit more cautious about what's going to go on in the, in the coming few years, um, particularly around things like income inequality, gender inequality, and immigration laws. Now, of course, uh, the Roaring Twenties, the 1920s, that was largely a phenomenon in um, so-called Western culture in parts of Western Europe and the United States and Canada. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. It was very much um, something that circulated as well in big urban centres like New York, Paris, Berlin, London, and um, those kind of places. I mean, through all of this conversation, we're going to focus on on more those areas rather than the, the, the what a pandemic really is, which is a global event. But um, it's something that that uh, strikes me is that a hundred years ago, medicine uh, and and uh, medical science was vastly different than what we're facing now. Yet a funny coincidence seems to be the efficacy of of masks. I'm wondering if you can uh, tell me how the, the, the medical science has changed over the past hundred years in regards to, uh, to, the, to the two pandemics. Absolutely. I mean, there's plenty of similarities, like most of the measures that were put in place to effectively contain the 1918 influenza pandemic were kind of low-tech social measures like quarantining, um, asking people to stay away from closing things like cinemas and shops and theatres, much like they've done 
um, over this past year in many places in the world. Um, and masks, as you say, were a key um, commonality between the two, you know, otherwise chronologically distant periods. Um, and you also saw in 1918 and 1919, lots of opposition to these measures and lots of opposition to things like masks, um, you know, along very similar lines that we see now, like along lines of kind of um, individual liberty or civil rights. Um, the big difference um, is the vaccine or the presence of vaccines. Um, and that's not because there weren't any vaccines back in 1918. There were there was the smallpox vaccine, which was um, effective and later went on to kind of eradicate um, smallpox globally. Um, but there wasn't a flu vaccine. And for most of the 1918 influenza pandemic, um, doctors were working under the misapprehension that it was a bacterial disease rather than a viral one. And so they were kind of even going down a bit of the wrong path in order to look for an effective vaccine. Now, obviously, we have um, multiple highly effective vaccines. And this has, you know, not only been uh, like an opportunity for real joy, but also a real opportunity for real optimism going forward, that this might be the thing that brings the pandemic to an abrupt close. So Agnes, the 1918 influenza pandemic infected about a third of the Earth's population, as you say, but a century ago, that virus targeted a different population. How does that virus compare with COVID-19 in terms of who were hit the hardest? Well, as we all know, the COVID vaccine has been a particular problem for older people. Um, obviously, it has been um, incredibly, um, it has effectively brought from all different age groups, um, and especially people with underlying health conditions or disabilities. Um, so I don't want to discount that kind of, those sorts of effects, but the thing that's unusual or that was particular about the 1918 influenza pandemic was that it was very much a disease that primarily affected the young. So people in their 20s and 30s were much more likely to die from that disease than um, people of older generations. Um, and, and so that was particularly harrowing for communities, for global communities, partly because it came you know, hot on the heels of World War One, um, which had also, you know, decimated the uh, particularly young men who had um, died on the front lines in various different places in the world. Um, and so it had a different age profile um, to the disease that we are now living with. Um, and so that's probably a very distinct um something that really uh, draws them apart. And you mentioned polio earlier. Polio also uh, uh, really hit the very young uh, and, and had long-lasting effects that were very visible. Um, but it, it's my understanding with, with COVID-19, even if there are long-lasting effects, they're not necessarily as visible as, say, a, a polio in, in infection. Um, do I, do I, I've, I've got that right? Well, polio definitely um, caused lifelong disabilities and, um, and sometimes very visible effects on the children who survived the disease. Um, I mean, the thing with COVID is there's so much we don't know about what's going to happen with people who have been afflicted with what we are currently terming long COVID. Um, and I think the science hasn't really caught up with precisely what that's going to look like for those, those people. Um, but yeah, there's definitely true that COVID, um, that polio had very sort of visible and easily recognizable after effects. So if if COVID is affecting older people and uh, and and um, you know polio and and the influenza pandemic are affecting uh, younger parts of the population, and as as you said, it uh, that was right after a large swath of the of the younger population was was killed in the First World War. Do you think that there's a, a difference in the societal um, reaction because of those different age ranges that are being most directly affected? Absolutely. I mean, I'm a historian um, as well as medicine and healthcare of emotions. Um, and it's really difficult to get an insight into past people's internal lives 
But I don't think it's unreasonable to speculate that if you had survived World War One, you're a young person, you'd also survived um, the influenza pandemic, which was, you know, posed a very immediate threat to your life. Um, you then might feel a real palpable and immediate sense of relief. And you could channel that relief into the kind of um, the kind of fun <laughs> and hedonism, going to bars, going to parties, going to dances that kind of really characterized the Roaring Twenties the first time around. Today, um, and again, not to discount any of the real, very real um, physical and emotional and mental health consequences of the coronavirus pandemic on young people, um, it might not, have had, might not have quite the same impact on the way they feel coming out of the pandemic. Um, and it might not cause quite the same sort of palpable, tangible, immediate relief that we saw you know, that could have been uh, channeled into that new um, social uh, life that we saw back then. Um, tell me more about the, this this marked shift in kind of the social dynamic, social norms. You mentioned the, the flourishing of gay culture. There was all, It was also uh, a high time for, for jazz and for nightclubs. And I think also cinema was also coming up during this era. It, tell me more about what what happened in the, you know, immediately following the 1918 flu through the 1920s um, and, and maybe draw the connection, you did a little bit earlier, but draw the connection between, um, or, or tell me about the, all of those different things as possible effects from uh, the influenza pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, the thing about um, the sort of roaring 20s was that it was really seen as a kind of break point from older Victorian cultures. And I mean Victorian in a kind of a loose sense, right, in a kind of cultural sense. Obviously, Queen Victoria herself had died, you know, 20 years prior. But there was still this sort of hangover of kind of what it was acceptable in, in public life, what was acceptable in terms of the clothes you wore and the kinds of um, cultural products you consumed. It's also a massive like technological um, sort of transformation or sort of slow transformation. Historians are very reluctant to talk about kind of like easy and quick changes in, in the past, but broadly speaking, it's fair to say that, you know, as you acknowledge, something like cinema, um, transport, and um, communication technologies were really on the up in this period. Um, and also you see sort of big cultural shifts and big social shifts. And one of the main ones is that the 1920s was supposed to see an expansion of women's role in society and an expansion of women's rights, um, particularly in terms of electoral rights or, demo or democratic rights, um, but also an expansion of female participation in the workplace. And this was partly a product of COVID, uh, sorry, of the influenza pandemic, um, because, as I said, this had really decimated um, young people, and particularly because it travelled with soldiers who were returning home from the front line, it was also mm -hmm. very much a male disease. And this, this is borne out in the demographics of the of the death rate certificates um, from um, the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic. That this very much killed young men, um, and this had a kind of tragic. Um, this sort of opened up a kind of tragic opportunity for women to take on roles in traditionally male industries, like even things like construction and factory work, but also in um, traditionally male professions like medicine and law. And you see a massive increase in women qualifying as doctors, for example, um, in this period. And um, so it is this sort of like, uh, you know, despite all that tragedy, it did provide a kind of shakeup of the, of the social order that allowed um, previously marginalized people to play a bigger role in, in social and political life. You definitely saw in the 1920s an uptick in disposable income, particularly for those who were already at the upper ends of kind of their socioeconomic 
ethnic order. Um, and we know this partly because they spent more money on all those kinds of cultural products that we were talking about before, like going to the cinema, alcohol, clothes, that kind of stuff. Um, but the 1920s also um, saw a increasingly widening gulf between the rich and the poor and an increased economic inequality. And this is the thing that people often don't think about when they think of the 1920s. They see all the glitz and the glamour, but they don't see the sort of exacerbated poverty that um, some people becoming richer you know, within capitalism almost inevitably produces. Um, and this is also, I suppose, one of the interesting things and perhaps both a parallel, but also a point of difference between then and now is that while today, um, you do, you have seen some people manage to retain their wealth or even you know increase their wealth over the course of the last year. I'm thinking particularly of like um, Jeff Bezos, who's <laughs> um, become even more of a billionaire <laughs> over the course of the last um, you know 12 to 14 months. But um, whereas for most people or for many people, um, COVID has had a dramatically deleterious impact on their income and on their financial solvency and this is particularly true for young people um, who have really struggled to stay in work and are unlikely to be able to bounce back really quickly particularly because they don't tend to have as many assets as um, you know their wealthier wealthier older generations like they don't own homes which seem to continue to be you know increasing in value um, but if you don't have one then it's even harder to get onto that property ladder for example um, and you know, as I said in the article, um, having fun, having the kind of fun that we think about when we think of the Roaring Twenties, that costs money, and it particularly mm -hmm. costs money for young people. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so, if we are, are thinking that the future might hold that kind of, you know, form of celebration, that kind of outpouring of joy and expression, um, it, we're not going to see that without some serious um, rethink about how we distribute. Um, money in our economies particularly in our economies in the global north um, and we've seen this you know throughout us canada britain europe um, the young have been the worst hit by this pandemic and i think it's very unlikely that they're going to be able to be flashed in the cash in the next couple of years the stratification of wealth the growing divide between rich and poor during the 20s is really interesting tell me about another parallel you mentioned in your piece uh, increase in nativist sentiment that ended up creating the u.s immigration act of 1924 and canada's chinese immigration act of 1923 are we seeing parallel sentiments today so the thing about um the 1920s is that we think of this as this period of like liber um, liberalism, equality and expanding opportunities. But simultaneously, it was also a period that saw a kind of sharp restriction on freedom of movement across borders. And as you say, various countries implemented anti-immigration legislation and they implemented anti-immigration uh, legislation that specifically targeted people from Asian countries. Um, as you mentioned, the Chinese Immigration Act is one example, um, but also from uh, other parts of South and East Asia. Um, and we're seeing very similar things happening today. Um, partly it's in the you know, increase of like anti-Asian sentiment, and um, particularly around kind of characterizations of COVID as the Chinese virus, um, the sort of racist formulation that this is a, you know, alien import in some way. Um, and we can see that in kind of like that's having real life ramifications for like harassment and abuse targeted at Asian people or people of Asian descent living in um, places like Britain, the US and Canada. Um, but we're also seeing, and as you pointed out, a kind of hardening of national borders, increasingly restrictive immigration policies, um, and as you say, a sort of increasingly nativistic or sort of nationalistic approach to public health. Um, and this is a 
um, very, in some ways, predictable for historians of medicine response to pandemics. Um, mm. uh, diseases often provoke, we think of diseases as being real kind of um, uh, provokers or promoters of, of massive social change, which they are, but they can also entrench inequalities and exacerbate um, problems that were already existing, but have now given been given sort of new cause to be entrenched in law. Um, and this, I think, is one of the most troubling and I think kind of um, negative outcomes of this pandemic. And we can see this also in the way that, for, for instance, the, the vaccine um, has been distributed globally, countries um, pursuing incredibly, you know, self-interested policies when it comes to patenting and, and the sharing of their kind of vaccine supply. And um, the story in India at the moment is unfolding in like a kind of particularly tragic way and we know that there are some countries that have you know it seems you know kind of in some ways patently unfair that there are you know I know in Quebec for example they're rolling out um, next month the vaccine to people in their 20s and 30s mm -hmm. but there are still places in some parts of the world where you can't get a vaccine even if you're in your 70s or 80s right and um, and these are inequalities that you know, they don't, weren't created by the COVID-19 pandemic, right? There's always been these like massive inequalities between the global north and the global south. And, um, you know, th these, this shouldn't come as, as a surprise to us, but it is demoralizing, I think, to see how the um, this pandemic, despite, you know, the ample amount of evidence at our disposal and the ample amount of historical precedent that we could draw from or learn from, that we seem to be following very similar trajectories as we go forward. Um, I just moved from the UK to Canada um, and in a very, very small way um, saw the difficulties that are imposed by um, the pandemic and how difficult it is to um, move across borders at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, this has been a relatively, you know, I don't want to overstate the, the sort of <laughs> challenges that I faced, but I do think it's important to recognize that we do live in an incredibly globalized world, right? Like everybody has now Pretty much everybody has family, loved ones, work, opportunities, whatever, in countries other than the one they're in. Um, and the pandemic has, in some ways necessarily, but also I think in other ways not necessarily, um, really restricted our freedom of movement. And I think that's kind of very troubling um, potential for the, for, for the future. So if you were, you were saying earlier that it, it seems to be that we're trending towards making some of the same mistakes uh, that happened in the 1920s, especially with regards to um, uh, uh, potentially um, putting in legislation that would uh, restrict um, or that would entrench, I guess would be a better word, anti-Asian sentiment. What, how can we avoid that? How can we avoid making the mistakes of yesterday? The problem with being a historian is that you really build a career out of pointing out other people's mistakes rather than having to actually provide <laughs> meaningful <laughs> solutions to those problems, which, you know, is a real professional flaw, which I completely take on board. Um, but I would say that um, we need to keep social justice at the core of any future policy plans. Um, and that might mean making decisions that are perhaps unpopular or thinking more creatively about how we can work around some of the challenges imposed by COVID-19. Um, I think we do have to have international movement of people free international movement people as much as is possible and hopefully to a greater extent than we had before COVID-19 even um, as, a, as, as a priority as we move forward rather than as a sort of like something we are willing to sacrifice um, because I think that will have really negative consequences not only for you know people's lives and happiness and well-being and you know employment opportunities but also for the way that we view other nations and other uh, you know I, 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 these sorts of anti-immigration 
immigration policies have had historically knock-on effects on how people conceptualize other races. You know, they exacerbate xenophobia, um, sort of very kind of hardened and negative and punitive ideas about sort of national identity and patriotism. Um, and so I think that needs to be really a priority going forward that, that we think very carefully about what we can retain. I also think we need to be very, very, think very, very seriously about how we are going to ensure that the vaccine is available globally. This pandemic will not be over until it is over for everybody. You know, and you see loads of these sorts of optimistic and joyous um, articles, including maybe my own, I'm adding to that problem, coming out of like lots of places like Britain and Canada talking about the end of the pandemic. You know, the pandemic is far from over. It just depends on where you're placed in the world um, as to what your perspective is on, on how soon that ending is. This is Why is produced by me, Adam Toy, and Dave McIver. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email at thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and get vaccinated if you can. We'll see you soon.